This is a Federal News Network podcast. Like much of the legislation enacted in the past couple of years, the National Defense Authorization Act has something for everybody. That includes the nation's federal and military firefighters. Earlier, I spoke with the president of the International Association of Firefighters, Edward Kelly. Mr. Kelly, good to have you on. Tom, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Let's just establish that the NDAA mainly concerned federal firefighters, military firefighters, but they are also represented by your union. Our International Association of Firefighters has 333,000 paid professional firefighters and EMTs and dispatches and paramedics throughout the United States and Canada and as far away as Guam and Guam and the Mariana Islands. So we have quite a swath of professional firefighters, but we do have 3,500 of our hard work very hardworking, work 72 hours a week is their regular schedule. Federal firefighters that protect up primarily our military installations. And let's talk about what's in that NDAA. And let me ask you about cancer presumption for federal firefighters diagnosed with cancers linked to that occupation. What's that all about? Tom, that's the most important issue that the NDAA address for firefighters. 97% of firefighters in the United States and Canada have cancer coverage. If we get diagnosed with cancer, it's presumed to be job-related because of all of the exposures we endure over the course of a career. What the federal firefighters never had that protection. Firefighters that worked on our military installations protected our military and our civilians in the federal sector. When they were diagnosed with cancer, and of course, many of them unfortunately succumbed to it, their families were basically left unprotected financially. They got no help. And what this does is right or wrong. You know, our Congress got it right. So now, God forbid, and it happens. It's the number one killer of firefighters is cancer. When our federal firefighters are now diagnosed with cancer, they'll get the coverage that they need to protect themselves and their family from that job-related incurred illness you know, that, that make, you know, obviously has a terrible impact on families. It's almost parallel to what Congress did for veterans in the burn pit situation. Correct. It's very much in the same vein. And Tom, I happen to have the honor of serving in the United States military. Our veterans and those that serve the public deserve to be taken care of when our service comes with the sacrifice of being diagnosed ill, etc. I believe society that we protect owes it to those of us to take those oaths, that make those sacrifices to protect us and our families, you know, when harm comes our way. And when you think of federal firefighting, you think of the wildfires going on. But then I think people sometimes overlook uh, military firefighters and military operates some bases and camps and posts that are small cities. And there's firefighting there, isn't there? Absolutely. I was a firefighter, an Air Force firefighter at Tyndall Air Force Base down in Panama City, Florida. And uh, we had a very active base with three training squadrons. At the time, it was F-15s each one of which, if we burnt up an F-15, would cost millions and millions and millions of dollars. So our primary mission as federal firefighters is to protect life. But also, there's so much very expensive property on our military installations that if we can stop a fire before it does uh, major damage, it saves exponential amount of money. And if you look next door to Tyndall, we have Eglin Air Force Base. You mentioned a small city. Eglin Air Force Base is larger than the state of Rhode Island. Not such a small city. I mean, high-rise hospitals, a lot of hazards. You know, we have major military installations with very specific and dangerous hazards that our firefighters have to be specifically trained for. You know, one of the exposures that we endure, in particular our federal firefighters, is PFAS exposures. 
one of the tools that we use in firefighting is aqueous film forming foam, particularly for our jet fuel. So a lot of our military installations that are fly that have flight lines, we've been using AFFF. AFFF is laden with PFAS. That PFAS is a, what we call a forever chemical, very dangerous. You see right. it now. Uh, a lot of the all of our federal military people, that I would hope at this point, know what PFAS is. All of us have been exposed to it. So another important thing that the NDAA did for us with PFAS is it forces the DOD, when they do their research, to share that research. So we know what not only we as firefighters, but our veterans and our families who are also exposed, what potential ramifications that exposure could cause our health and what we need to be tested for and screened for. So it's very important. I mentioned the PFAS on the phone. We also have that same PFAS infused into our PPE, our personal protective equipment, our bunker gear that you see us wearing. That is loaded with PFAS as well. So another important aspect of the NDAA is it forces the DOD to never purchase PFAS-laden gear once an alternative becomes available. Very important for us. We are speaking with Edward Kelly. He is president of the International Association of Firefighters. And just a quick question on the PFAS. Alternative foams are pretty much in development now, correct? So mainly what this does is keep it out of the gear, because I'm pretty sure they do have alternative foams that they're required to buy now, correct? They do. In fact, other countries have banned PFAS-laden fuel years ago. So we're actually catching up to some of the other, you know, modern countries around the world that have made those advances already. Now, is there gear available that does not have PFAS? Not at this time. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's an interesting dilemma that we find ourselves in. The governing standards body, the NFPA, that defines what a PPE ensemble needs to incorporate actually has in their standard requirements that would call for the infusion of PFAS into the gear. We have actually been pushing the NFPA, fighting the NFPA. We actually filed an amendment, an emergency amendment to change that, uh, which was actually denied by the NFPA committee. Um, So we're pushing the NFPA committee to change that standard so we can produce and manufacture PFAS-free gear for our members. We're confident that in this day and age, we can absolutely create a PPE ensemble that's not going to poison us. Right. And will also protect you from heat and smoke and fire. Correct. We certainly have the wherewithal at this stage of the game to be able to come up with a safer alternative. And the NDAA also had something to say about minimum staffing. We bring to an emergency, whether it's a fire, an accident, is people, trained, qualified firefighters, paramedics. The most important thing we bring, it's not water, it's not ladders, it's people. And what minimum staffing does in the NDAA is brings our DOD firefighter staffing levels up to what the NFPA standard calls for, what a lot of our municipalities have, which is four firefighters on a pumper, an engine, and three firefighters on a crash truck, an aircraft rescue truck. So that brings us up to minimum staffing levels which is critical when we have an emergency. So that, that's a great benefit, not only to us firefighters to work safer, but also it, it enhances our ability to protect the civilians that, was, that we took an oath to do just that. Let me ask you this, the life of a firefighter in the military, is it similar to that in the civilian life? That is to say, you have a shift and you spend that in the firehouse in ready state. I would say federal firefighters have it really much worse than than civilian firefighters. The average firefighter works between a 42 
to a 56-hour work week. Federal firefighters have to work a 72-hour work week minimum. So, you know, if you think about it, it's going to be 2023 here in about a week. How many other sectors in the workforce in a, I'll call it a first world country, have a average work week of 72 hours? That's 72 hours away from home. That's before, you know, we have general staffing crises across the fire service. That's before you get forced in overtime or taken overtime. We have Kelly days in some place where they get canceled. So all of that adds up to working in some cases over 100 hours a week. That's that's significant. That 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 causes a lot of health challenges. And you can imagine, you know, the struggles trying to raise a family when someone has to be away from home 72 to 100 hours a week. And when they're not actually fighting a fire, they don't also just sit around reading books and cooking spaghetti either, do they? No, no. We do like to cook spaghetti, but there's also significant training involved in maintaining hazardous materials capabilities, maintaining your technical rescue capabilities, ensuring that you're up to speed and your medical certifications. There is a, a lot of work goes into training and, and making sure that we're prepared for all of the unique hazards that we face protecting military installations. And do we have any statistics about how many fires occur in the military installations throughout the year? How, how big a problem is this? Oh, we have, we, we've had significant fires. You think about some of the ship fires that we had. We had one up in San Diego a couple of years ago that was very significant, burned for a couple of days. We also had a submarine fire up in New Hampshire in, in Portsmouth Naval Base. When we have fires like that, sometimes we can do hundreds of millions of dollars in damage. And it compromises, quite frankly, our national security. So it's less the number of occurrences of serious fires that we have in military installations. It's the fact that one fire can do an incredible amount of not only financial, but national security compromising damage that we have to be prepared, trained, staffed, equipped, and ready to mitigate in a moment's notice. That's the real challenge, that we can have significant problems with unique life safety hazards with a tremendous financial impact. That's why we need to make sure we're trained, staffed, and properly equipped on our military installations. Anything else in the NDAA we need to know about? There was also a piece that allowed more behavioral health services to become available through the NDAA. You look at issues like we've had, say, the Boston Marathon bomb that was not a federally declared disaster. What the NDAA does through this legislation is allows FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, to provide some behavioral health services to those impacted by disasters that aren't quite the level of a national disaster. So that's very important. I'd also mention that they're building some new firehouses, including in my old base, Tyndall Air Force Base, in Fort Carson, Colorado, in Fort Bliss, Texas. What we're learning is that by designing a more modern firehouse, we can compartmentalize the exposures that we bring back into the firehouse and that we basically live within. And by compartmentalizing those exposures, it reduces the health impact that it has on firefighters. So those new firehouses, they're not only necessary because they're very old, they also will have a positive health impact in the long term. Also important, another thing that we fought for and supported and, and asked President Biden to personally intervene on is the Red Hill Fuel Facility out in Hawaii. Our Hawaii firefighters, as you can imagine, were up in arms and concerned about the jet fuel leaking into their drinking water. And uh, I'm proud to say and happy to say that President Biden stepped up and 
the NDAA directs the DOD to uh, defuel that facility and address those environmental issues that are out there in Hawaii. So we applaud him for that. Edward Kelly is president of the International Association of Firefighters. Thanks so much for joining me. Hey, it was an honor to be here, Tom. Thank you. And thank you for what you're doing to keep us all informed about our federal issues. All right. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and 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 physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they they basically were in d- direct care, and and I will say, and on I obviously will say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, pr- profound disabilities are are really um, you know we we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, and I thought, well, you know, I'll take a look at it and see, see you know, throw, uh, send in my information, and lo and behold, I I, I get hired, and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington D.C. and you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries. Uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has a, has a good story. Like it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, often when you'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is, you know, stressing me out. And come on, you know, like look at look at Terrell. Like he, he he faces everything with optimism, and 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 I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally. You see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents when they were born were often told this is a tragedy, and you should you should you know send your this child away. Don't don't you know and kind of forget about them. Get, turn them over to the state or or wherever. And and you know that you know just kind of watch, watch your hands a bit. Um, and 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 in in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and but they've still faced enormous challenges. You know, and but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming, and uh, and and you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through 
all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a- the athletes of Special Olympics that uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more, uh, we get more than we give. Uh, working with Special Olympics, it, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful and and I mean, we work hard and you know we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day. But uh, man, you see, it, it, and 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 the inclusion and the at Special Olympics, no one's excluded. You know, no, right. no one's excluded. Everyone yeah. is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot. But you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, um, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier, um, where people and, and it doesn't have to be. Uh, it's not just school age. It's it's, uh, you know, we say nine to ninety nine or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding uh, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website, uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. 
Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll uh, talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.